and welcome back to Diversity Dialogues. My name is Victoria Rose Dietz and I'm your host. Today we have some really cool topics and I'm very excited to talk about them. I also hope that you all are staying warm. It's negative six out and I most definitely did not want to walk outside today to come and do this. Um, I love talking and I love doing this podcast, um, but not when it's negative six and I'm freezing and my face freezes off when I walk out the door. <laughs> um, I don't have a guest for today, so I thought I would take the chance to talk about something that I found really important and I'm passionate about. I am incredibly dedicated to this issue. Um, this is the issue of social justice, reproductive justice, and this is really relevant to current events. So to start off, we should start by defining social justice. I'm going to first say that I love this definition. My social work professor, Tammy Fox, gave us this definition in one of our second year classes. I believe it was human behavior. And I love it. It really gets at the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is multiple tiered pyramid looking graph that goes from basic needs such as food, shelter, water at the very bottom to fulfillment and engagement up at that top point. And I'll read it to you here also you get it. Um, social justice is defined as ensuring that everyone's needs are met so that they can lead a fulfilling life regardless of race, ethnicity, age, gender, identity, sexual orientation, or socioeconomic status. This definition, as I said, really shows that someone can't lead a successful, fulfilling life unless we meet those basic needs. And as a social worker, we really have to look at person and environment and examine how those other cultural, social, environmental factors affect an individual's ability to obtain resources. Um, and this can even come in the fact of discrimination or systematic oppression based on their identity. Thus, to advocate for social justice, we need to make sure that individuals can be successful because those basic needs are being met regardless of who they are and their background, everyone should have the opportunity to be fulfilling, to have a fulfilling life and be successful. With that in mind, I love to look at a kind of a subsection of social justice, reproductive justice. And this is talking about bodily autonomy and rights to healthcare. So before we get into some current events that have been going on, I'd like to go through some inf important information and background about reproductive justice. I like to start off with defining gender inequality. Um, I define this 
as the social process by which people are treated differently and disadvantageously under similar circumstances on the basis of gender. This definition really, again, examines the social aspect of it and where aspects of social discrimination and systematic oppression can come in based on gender. We see this both sides. If you've ever seen the movie On the Basis of Sex by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I highly recommend it. It really kind of gets at this gender inequality. However, when RBG was working, it was earlier, I believe it takes place in, uh, I'm not exactly sure what time period it takes place in, but early, right after she's out of grad school, and she identifies this man who was discriminated against on getting a tax relief based on his gender because the law assumed that a man would not stay home and take care of their aging parent. It only assumed that women would do so. And they go to this court, they appeal it, and they eventually make the case and win the case. And so there's, it says a precedent of no discrimination on the basis of sex. And I think that that's really important. And we should also remember that sex and gender are two different things. Um, sex can be um, assigned sex at birth. Um, gender is more of a spectrum. We see various cultures and backgrounds define gender very differently and have different views of ways of viewing gender. Typically, our world, our current social norm, is to view it as a binary, where an individual is either a man or a woman. There are no other options, and that's not true. We see spectrum not as necessarily a line, but as a circle, or not even just a shape. We don't have to define it. We can see in Native cultures, we see various genders that our American culture as a whole doesn't necessarily recognize, unfortunately. And we should remember that gender is not binary. There's many ways that gender can be defined by an individual. And I think that's also important that gender equality isn't just against women as or men, as we historically have seen in the courts. It can be against those who identify as non-binary or transgender, not just cisgender individuals. So kind of going on and looking at gender bias in medicine, I'm going to start way back in 3rd century BCE. This is going back to Aristotle. And Aristotle defined women as the inverse of men, and they were considered deficient or defective. However, their value was based on their purpose to bear children. This is obviously a very traditional value, and unfortunately, we saw this still with even, even within the 20th century, with the typical social norm being a heterosexual couple, with the women staying home and being the homemaker, and men going out and being in the workforce. 
um, that view ultimately continued to continue on, obviously, and has had significant effects. However, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, moving from 3rd century BCE to 16th century, a little bit of a jump, we see the start of modern medicine. And again, we see some gender bias, specifically for women. Um, hysteria was a common diagnosis for women. It also marked a connection between the body and mental health. So there are some obvious cons going on here. And one pro, unfortunately, women's health was not taken as seriously and hysteria was just a common diagnosis to label either mental illness or other hormonal or physical effects going on with the body. It was an easy umbrella term that kind of covered everything. However, it is important to note that we started seeing some important recognition of mental health, even if it wasn't a negative light. However, we should obviously not be praising the uh, doctors for just diagnosing hysteria when there was obviously more going into it, but important to talk about. Moving on to the 1960s, we see that since then, feminist health campaigns have fought tirelessly against the suppression of drugs, side effects, and systematic gender and racial bias in clinical research. This is from both within and outside the medical establishment. Um, women have forced changes in law and practice by campaigning from the ground up, and their efforts ultimately have made medications, including the contraceptive pill and hormone replacement therapy, safer for all women. So typically, clinical research was done with the typical either men, white men, not looking at other genders or races. And we saw that we this bias created negative side effects for these minority groups. And kind of moving on into that 1970s, we see the very important feminist movement. I believe this was the second wave of the feminist movement where women were focused on empowerment and reclaiming ownership over their bodies. We see Roe v. Wade come into power in 1973. However, that ban in 1977, FDA banned women of childbearing potential from participating in early phase clinical research, except for life-threatening conditions. Again, going back to Aristotle, we see that the value of women is placed on their ability to bear children and not necessarily on their mental capabilities or skills or just recognizing them as a human being and not just as a womb. And that's important to really see that that's a common thread throughout all of this. Kind of bringing it to today, the 2010s and beyond, the International Organization for Migration Report titled Women's Health Research Progress, Pitfalls, and Promise highlights areas of advancement and reimagining deficiency in women's health research. It's focused on implementing laws focused on restricting the health care of assigned female birth individuals. Again, we're seeing that discrimination within research that negatively impacts, impacts women's health. Because of the lack of research, 
there are things such as autism that go heavily undiagnosed in women as well as other conditions and things like that. We see them negatively impacting women because of this lack of research. And again, it's because of the value placed on their ability to have children, specifically assigned female birth individuals. Kind of tracking back, we're gonna go to Roe v. Wade. This was decided on January 22nd, 1973. It just celebrated its 49th anniversary this year in 2022, and it was a 7-2-2 decision for Roe. This ultimately was based on the fact that Roe argued Texas laws were unconstitutionally vague and abridged her right of personal privacy, specifically with respect to abortion. So the right to choose falls within the privacy of the 14th Amendment and Due Process Clause which protects against state action and protects the rights to privacy. So breaking it down into trimesters, we see first trimester, the state won't be able to regulate anything. Whereas the second trimester, states may impose regulations that are reasonably related to maternal health. And third trimester, viability occurs, which means the fetus can live outside the womb and the state can regulate abortions or prohibit them. There are exceptions for cases when it's necessary to save life or the health of the mother. It's important to note that very little abortions occur within the third trimester. And there obviously have been some laws, which we will come back to to later within this podcast, that are focused on restricting abortion within that first trimester. Again, it's with Texas. Um, Again, we'll go back to it later, but we're seeing some changes within Roe v. Wade. Another important thing going along with this conversation is the Hyde Amendment. So this amendment was first introduced in 1976 in response to the legalization of abortion. So this prevents Medicaid funding for abortion, even if the doctor recommends it and a life is at risk. This amendment ultimately infringes on the privacy and the right to choose. As a social worker, while we can have very differing views on abortion and my personal take is that self-determination is key. We should allow clients to choose what is best for them and empower them to make the right choice. However, I know other social workers might be focused on saving a human life and viewing abortion as not promoting the sanctity of human life. And these are two very different opposing views and it's very hard to get that compromise because there's such strong religious, social, moral, ethics tied to this issue that it's hard to get that compromise and figure out where we should stand on this. And this podcast by no means is to encourage a certain viewpoint. It's more kind of talking about the facts of reproductive and social justice. 
just kind of had to slide that in there, but it's important to talk about. And however, with this Hyde Amendment, we find that it's particularly harmful to marginalized and vulnerable populations, such as low-income individuals, people of color, younger individuals, and immigrants. This is important to look at the ramifications of restricting abortion, specifically because it affects many marginalized populations and restricting such as putting on time restraints or closing down clinics because of lack of funding or just trying to condense and prevent abortions negatively impacts these people because they don't necessarily have the resources to obtain it from where it's offered. If you have to travel to another state that requires time, money, and taking time off of work, which is both time and money, and many people can't afford that. So we see that one in five people, or specifically women assigned female at birth, are covered by Medicaid. And even if they need that abortion, they won't be able to be have that funding to support them. In addition, 79% of Americans don't want Roe v. Wade overturned. And in total, that's that's a significant portion of the population. It should be kind of discussed about popular opinion as well as self-determination and figuring out where we should stand on this issue. I think that when we're talking about this, we should also look at other nations' laws and what they do. So I chose four different countries to kind of look at, specifically Canada, Kenya, Denmark, and Australia, to see differences within their laws and the United States. We see that in Canada, it's legal at all stages of pregnancy, regardless of their reason, and it's publicly funded. However, in Kenya, it was originally criminalized, but now there are exceptions for health of the mother and rape. And with Denmark, abortion is on request after 12 weeks only if women's health is in danger. So before 12 weeks, it's on request, and after 12 weeks, it's only if it's affecting the health of the mother. And in Australia, it is fully decriminalized in all jurisdictions as of 2021. I just thought it's really important to kind of look at the entire world as well, not just within our context. So I did want to approach some abortion myths. I know that this is a really touchy subject, but it's important to talk about. So we see that Plan B and the abortion pill are the same thing. That is a myth um, that essentially equates that the Plan B emergency contraception pill is different, is the same thing as abortion. So we see that emergency contraception will not impact an existing pregnancy and has no impact if fertilization has already occurred. It merely prevents pregnancy from occurring and it's different from medication abortion, which terminates an already established pregnancy. So the capabilities of those two medications are very different and they're two different medications. Another myth is that abortion is dangerous. The mortality rate of the procedure is that 0.67 deaths of the 
pregnant individual per 100,000 abortions is, that's the mortality rate. Whereas pregnancy is 8.8 deaths per 100,000. Less than half of 1% of legal abortions performed result in serious complications. So it doesn't really impact fertility of if you want to get pregnant later in life. There's also the myth of getting an abortion increases your risk of breast cancer and infertility. However, the American Medical Association and American Cancer Society have concluded there's no link between breast cancer and abortion. Other research has also shown no link to future infertility. And the last myth that I kind of want to tackle is that abortions cause depression and mental health issues. For most women, however, the time of greatest distress is more likely to be before an abortion. After an abortion, women frequently report feeling relief and happiness, and research has disproved linkages between depression and abortion. There is typically more anxiety going into the procedure than there is coming out of it. I think now it's time to move into the current events of this week, and not necessarily this week, but currently um, within our society. So first we have the Texas law SB8. This law was focused on banning abortion after six weeks. It is It was within the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court upheld the Texas abortion law, but leaves openness for providers to sue. We saw this come up again. This was originally decided before the first of this year, but we saw March for Our Life, an anti-abortion rally in Washington, D.C. So that was on the 49th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, And there are many worries that Roe v. Wade won't see its 50th anniversary. The majority of Americans, as I said before, uphold Roe v. Wade. But when we see that this court is a more conservative court because of President Trump's appointees, there seems to be sliding um, to support with that right-wing pro-life policy or pro-life ideology, I should say, rather than the more pro-choice ideology of the left wing. I think it's really important to look at both sides to this issue. We have to listen to one another, and while I may personally have my own viewpoints, I also want to learn from others and promote empowerment and advocacy for individuals. I think it's vital that we take a look at reproductive justice and ensure that everyone's needs are met so that they can lead a fulfilling life. Going back to that social justice aspect, if they don't have the financial means to carry a a pregnancy to term or take care of a child, they shouldn't have to. They should be able to make the decision that's best for themselves. It is also kind of really important to look at the other march that happened recently, which is the March Against Vaccine Max- Mandates for COVID-19. We'll, we'll see the connection here in a second. Just let me 
let me get to it here. <laughs> um, so for COVID-19, since the start of this pandemic, COVID has killed more than 860,000 Americans. And that's important to note when looking at these vaccine mandates and how they affect individuals. So this march happened within the past few days. It's the week of January 24th. So it was recently and we see that it included extremist groups such as the Proud Boys. We saw this come to power during the debates of the presidential election when it was mentioned. Uh, this group, the Proud Boys, is a white nationalist and neo-Nazi group that the Southern, Southern Poverty Law Center defines as a general hate group. It's also a part of the January 6, 2021 insurrection of the U.S. Capitol. It's important to note that there were many individuals at this march that were part of the broader anti-vaccine movement, obviously. And this movement is basically kind of grappling with the issue of individual autonomy versus scientific ideas. Uh, we saw that there were many arguments against the FDA approval and worries about long-term side effects. and. We see that science has addressed these things, such as with FDA approving Pfizer and having emergency approval from Moderna and J Johnson & Johnson, as well as the, the long-term side effects, I should say, are have been shown not to be extensively long-term. It's within weeks that a long-term side effect would show up because vaccines, they don't change the DNA, they just focus on creating that immunity and working with the mRNA. So we see that the scientific ideas are coming up to promote the vaccine and promote the safety and well-being of individuals within our country. However, we're seeing similar rhetoric to the pro-choice movement and reproductive justice movement, which is that my body, my choice. And many of the individuals, since it is more of a right-wing idea, since this idea has become politicized rather than focusing on just ensuring the safety of others, we see that more conservative viewpoints are pro-life when it comes to abortion and pro-choice when it comes to the vaccine movement. And... This irony is really interesting to me because you can ask someone, should you get the vaccine? If not, why? And they'll say, it's my body, my choice. You, the government shouldn't be telling me what to do with my body. But then go ahead and say that a woman doesn't have the right, a woman or individual doesn't have the right to choose whether or not they carry a pregnancy to term. And I think that I'm trying to phrase this in a way that shows that there's a contradiction in terms here. We need to support people to choose what's best for them, especially if there's adverse side effects or if they are having health issues that prevent them or religious um, religious beliefs that prevent them from getting the vaccine. But there are also focusing on the well-being of others and the well-being the general well-being of the public
rather than focusing on the individual. This is going off on a little bit of a tangent, but this is kind of the idea of individualism versus collectivism. Individualism in political science is stating that a person will look out for themselves and only themselves. Whatever is in the best interest, they will work to do that. Whereas collectivism is that individual may put aside their self-interest for the well-being of the public. So we're seeing a fight between these two ideas, both within these two movements. And specifically with COVID, many individuals are saying they should have the right to choose, which they should. They should be able to choose what they want to do with their body. However, they should also take into mind the consequences that it may have such as not being able to eat at certain restaurants or being able to attend public schools. We should see that, um, we should see that there are exceptions for those who have different religious beliefs or um, different or have health conditions that prevent them. But we should also be looking to help those individuals who can't get vaccinated by getting the vaccine and doing our research and looking up what the facts are and seeing how we can better help the collective and promote the collective good rather than our own self-interests. With connecting this to reproductive justice, we see that as a whole, the collective good, which this public supports upholding Roe v. Wade and the legalization of abortion within the U.S., it's while your own individual views might be that you personally wouldn't have one or your religious beliefs wouldn't align with that, freedom of religion means that if somebody else's religion, your religion doesn't impact somebody else's life and that they can choose what's best for them and you can also choose what's best for you. If making making a choice that's best for you is ultimately what it comes down to rather than making decisions for others that is what my perspective is i'm not saying this is what everybody's perspective is or every social worker's perspective is but this is what my perspective is and this is just a hot take um, on this issue and i really wanted to kind of get into the nitty-gritty of this so kind of backing out and not just letting you guys listen to me talk and preach or get off, I'll get off my soapbox, but I did want to promote some important resources about reproductive justice. So go to, if you go to Planned Parenthood, we can see some important resources that they have about educating about reproductive justice, whether that be abortion or contraception. We also see the NARAL Pro-Choice America they are also a good resource for understanding the issues that we talked about today, as well as the Center for Reproductive Rights. A few important books that I've read that I would love to recommend that I read like in two days um, is the You're the Only One I've Told by Dr. Mira Shaw. This book really opened my eyes. It goes through these stories of individuals this doctor helped to get an abortion based on all of their stories and they have very different backgrounds some of them have kids some of them don't have kids 
some of them identify as women, some identify as non-binary. And it really opens your eyes to different cultural viewpoints and different backgrounds, ultimately different perspectives on the issue. And I think that that was an important book that really kind of motivated me to get involved more in this issue than I already was. Another more fact-based one, um, not that the other one wasn't fact-based, it's easier to read because it's more narrative in nature, but the Turnaway Study is an actual study that's a book by Dr. Deanna Green Foster. This book essentially is a research into, it's the longest uh, like reproductive justice research study that has occurred. And it's a long-term study focused on women's health and individuals' health as they had abortions or if they didn't have abortions. And it includes different stories within there as well, such as the previous book. I loved both of these books. They are really important. Um, to look at. Um, and finally, I would like to leave this podcast with a really important quote that can be applied to all things social justice. It is, real change, enduring change, happens one step at a time. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I hope you take her words into account when looking at social justice and promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion within your life and as you go about your day. I would like to thank you all for listening in to this episode of Diversity Dialogues. Stay tuned next month for some really cool guests and really important topics. Thank you so much and have an amazing rest of your January.